The sermon text this morning is from the book of Galatians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, we're, we're standing on the threshold of an incredible book to study. Uh, this book has ignited the hearts of men and women over the years in renewal and kind of a, an excitement for the gospel and uh, hearts that are turned towards God. And Martin Luther said this was Paul's greatest work. He also said that if he could marry an epistle, uh, Galatians would be his wife. So you can tell that he was very enthused about it. I pray that, uh, that you will be as well. It's been called the Magna Carta of the Reformation. You know, the Magna Carta, for those that are right now scaling back in their history lessons, trying to remember what is that. It was the, the Great Charter, King John in 1215, giving rights and liberties uh, to people. This is what the book does. It, it's receiving this kind of praise because it shows us how to be right with God. And it shows us then how to live with joy before God as we encounter the Spirit towards the back end of the book. It's a book that gives to us freedom and liberty to rejoice in all that we have in God because of Christ. Now, Paul, you're going to see this apostle most animated, angry, excited over the work of Christ. You'll see probably more emotion in Paul than any other book in the New Testament. Very early on in the faith, probably less than 20 years uh, after the church was planted in Jerusalem, these false teachers came and introduced another gospel, a different gospel, a a gospel that held to faith in Jesus by uh, faith in Jesus as Messiah, but also the things we need to do to be included within the people of God. So Paul takes this on. He, he goes right after this threat. And he does it by first defending his apostolic call from God himself and the glory of his message that he's given. So it's going to be filled with, I think, clarifying moments over, the, over what we believe and the freedom that it gives to us. So what I want to do today is just look at the introduction and look at four aspects of the true gospel, the true gospel. There are many other counterfeits and alternatives, but Paul is going to give us the true gospel here. We're going to look at it in four angles. One is that the true gospel is from above. The true gospel is from above. It's it's not from men. It's not developed in our minds. Secondly, the true gospel brings an actual reconciliation with God. Not a potential, not a hoped reconciliation, but an actual. And then this true gospel also inaugurates or begins a new age of freedom. Freedom from sin. Freedom from this present evil age. 
And then last, this true gospel will result in the glory of God. All glory will go to God. When you understand this, there'll be no seeking some degree of self-glory for what you may or may not have done with all that you've had in your life. It will give all the glory to God. So let's look at the first one together. Uh, first, a true, the true gospel comes from above. Look with me at 1 and 2. 1 and 2, he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. So, so here, Paul, you know, most uh, New Testament letters that have been ascribed to Paul, many scholars will often question, is this really a Pauline epistle? Did Paul really write it? This is not questioned by many at all. You see the similarities. You see him introduce himself. You see the recipients that are receiving the letter. You see those normal greetings. But you notice something different about this right off the bat. It begins in a negative. He's saying, I'm an apostle, but it's not by these things. It's not by men. It's not by uh, a man. Now, what's happening here is some of these false teachers came in and they said, Who's Paul? I mean, Paul wasn't even with Jesus Christ. He wasn't one of the 12. He didn't walk with Jesus in ministry. He's dubious. I mean, he maybe got some teaching or some call uh, from men. But Paul's saying, no, I'm an apostle, not, not from men. There was no ecclesial decision that conferred apostleship on me. There was no man or no leader of the church. Paul's saying, I am an apostle through Jesus Christ. So I think what he's referring to is this Damascus Road experience. That unique to Paul was the appearing of Christ after the resurrection, and Jesus called him to himself, and he commissioned him to go with the gospel to the Gentiles. So here Paul is saying, no, my commissioning is from Jesus Christ himself. Who can claim that? To see the risen Lord. But not just that, he says, from God. God's the source of this commissioning. It comes from God. It comes through Christ, but it comes from God. Now, notice that Paul references God who raised Jesus from the dead. So why would he reference the resurrection? Well, I think he does it because Paul knows that, you know, when, when Judas, of course, died, and the replacement for Judas, the replacement of this 12th apostle, he had to be one who had seen the risen Christ. Well, Paul had seen the risen Christ. That's why he references God who raised Jesus from the dead, because Paul saw him. And this wasn't a, you know, the Galatian churches uh, were not just accusing Paul of being kind of half an apostle, but so did the church in Corinth. Right? He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1, he says, he says that, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? So Paul is trying to establish himself as an apostle before these people. But he doesn't just do it by showing his divine commissioning. He also do it by saying, all the other brothers with me. Now Paul's not just speaking about, you know, the, it could be the group of traveling missionaries that were with him. But I think Paul's probably referring to the apostles as well. They've all agreed with Paul, this is the gospel message. Next chapter, in chapter 2, we're going to see that Paul is examined by the apostles. That Paul checked out, his message checked out. See, Paul was most concerned that this kind of half a gospel was getting through these churches. That's why he writes to the churches of Galatia. That's not a town, it's a province in southern Turkey. It would be the towns that Paul planted churches in Acts 13 and 14. Pisidian, Pamphylia, and Derbe. 
and Lystra, those towns in southern Asia Minor that he planted, they were beginning to follow a false gospel. I want you to see that Paul is most concerned not to establish his credentials for his own purposes, but he's establishing his credentials so that they can believe in the gospel that he's preaching, that there is no other gospel. There will be plenty of counterfeits that come down the road, and we'll see a few of those next week. There's plenty of alternatives, but this is the one true gospel. It's been given to me by God himself. Now, consider the implications of this just for a minute. I mean, think about that. If what I am saying is true, what are the implications for you? I mean, what Paul is saying to us is the words that we have are God's words to us. So God is speaking to us. This isn't the, you know, the third level developed thoughts of a religious man. Paul has received a revelation from God given to him through Jesus Christ, and now he's communicating it to us. That means that the words of Galatians that we'll be studying, it's not some good suggestions on how to be a better Christian. It's not telling us, hey, here are three ways how you can be a a better husband or wife. These are the words of God. They're to arrest our attention. That when we read these words, we're thinking this is God speaking to us. That's why I think Galatians has ignited the heart, hearts of many people. You know, the Reformation in the 16th century uh, changed the the Western world. You know, of course, the Reformation was that period of time where um, these Christian thinkers, influenced by the Renaissance, so all the old writings and the original documents are coming back, they're being studied, and for the first time, the words of God are being studied with incredible care. Words, syntax, phrases of the Bible. That's what ignited the Reformation. This is why we spend so much time just reading the Word, because we believe these are God's words to us. And if these are God's words, they're to be studied, understood, memorized. Now, most of us believe it, or we would give some verbal affirmation. Yeah, I believe it's God's word. But it also calls us to obey them. And this is where I think a lot of the rub is. It's hard to obey. You know, we all have that kind of anti-authoritarian streak in us. We just don't want to do what we don't want to do. I mean, you see it in children. Cute, sweet little children. You know, obedient. You just... Just tell them to do something they don't want to do or, or, or restrict something that they really want. You see this maybe three-year-old, little back can bow up just like a 53-year-old. And, and, and it doesn't go away when you get older. You know, this idea, now I know most of us are not anti-authoritarian in a high handed, tight-fisted way against God. I think it's much more dangerous than that. I think we struggle with obeying God's word uh, by ignorance of not knowing it or by passive resistance. Well, I'm going to kind of look over that one. And I just wonder if many of our problems, at least some of them, might be lessened by greater obedience to what God tells us to do. God wants us to have joy. 
That's what the book's about. Freedom and joy in God. A, a happiness in life, even in the face of death, knowing that he's sovereign over all things. And I just wonder if our problems might be lessened by a greater study and obedience to the word of God that Paul has given to us here. I mean, think about it. Many of us are in relational turmoil right now. We have relational struggles. And I just wonder if his call to forgive as we've been forgiven wouldn't help us out in some of our relational struggles or, or our discontentment with this life. I wonder if his call uh, to be more generous to those in need. I wonder if the, if the habit of obedient giving might in fact bring greater joy to us with the things that we do have. Or the call to rid ourselves of anger. You know, if we in fact you know, kind of walked away from the bitterness that can kind of creep up in our souls, I wonder if we might not have greater joy and freedom. Now, this is I, probably once a month I remind you, you can ask a friend or maybe a spouse, ask them, where do you see me walking in ignorant disobedience to what God's told us to do? And not just in Galatians and any book of the scriptures, but, but where do you see me having kind of an anti-authoritarian, kind of a pushing back on God? Maybe in a gentle way, but just kind of a pushing back to God. It's hard to see our own sin just as it's hard to see the dirt on our own face. We need others. But that does require you to be honest and vulnerable. And you've got to open yourselves up. And I, I get that's dangerous. So that's the first thing we see here, that the gospel, the true gospel, comes from above. Paul's going to give us the true gospel. It was given to him by God through Christ, commissioned to speak to the world. Okay, the second thing is the true gospel brings an actual reconciliation. Look with me at verse 3. In verse 3 he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, going to four with me, who gave himself for our sins. Now, anybody that has read some of the New Testament epistles, you see that's kind of a familiar language, grace and peace. Uh, and I want you to know, though, it's not a throwaway term. It's not a casual thing he's saying. When he says grace to you, He's speaking about God's unmerited favor. He wants us to get this. He wants us to see that those who are believing in the gospel, you are recipients of grace and peace. This grace is God's unmerited favor. It's God's unilateral action to be kind to us in saving us. That, that word grace is a huge word. It's pregnant with truth and hope. That God is saving us of his own accord, not rooted in what these false teachers will say by the things that you add to the gospel, but God is kind. We often think of God as so harsh and judgmental, and yet we pass over these truths about God that are to inflame our hearts and draw us to him, that he's full of grace for us. Now, why does he couple grace and peace well, peace really is the fruit, or it's the outgrowth of grace. That is, having peace with God means that we are reconciled to God, that the enmity, the wrath of God against us for who we are, what we have done, that's been removed. The judgment that should fall on me for my sins and on you, that judgment has passed over you. 
you will die but not stand, the Christian will die but not stand in judgment before God. That you're at peace. You're secure. He's going to speak about we're adopted. We're children. Children can sin against parents and they don't stop being sons or daughters. They may, they may face the loving rebuke of a parent, but they don't lose their sonship or their daughtership. So this is incredible that we have peace with Almighty God, the one who sits in the heavens and does as he pleases. He's at peace with us. We're in good stead. We're a son or a daughter. I mean, all of us should be saying, how do I have this grace and peace? How, how do I get hold of this? How, how is it to be mine? How can I be assured that this is my treasure? Well, you see it in the next line when he says, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. Jesus Christ gave himself. I don't skip over that. It's such a little phrase, and yet upon it should be resting all of our hearts. He gave himself for us. His life wasn't taken from him. He didn't get forced into doing it. It wasn't a duty call for him. He gave himself to it. He didn't do it to be some hero. He didn't do it to display to you how much God loves you in the heavens. Although it is a demonstration of it, he gave himself not just voluntarily, but you see, substitutionary. He gave himself for our sins. He gave himself because of what we have done. He has stepped into our shoes and he has borne our punishment. He's fulfilling out this promise in Isaiah. You know, all of us like sheep have gone astray and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has like a dump truck backing up with all of Tom and just laid on him at all. And none of it was left on me. All of it was put on him. So you see that he died for our sins. This is what moves God to give grace and mercy and grace and peace. It is the work of Christ which moves the hand of God to give favor to his people. One author said it this way, only because Jesus died to bear the penalty of our sins can Paul extend to us the offer of God's love, favor, and peace. Do you see now why Paul might have said in 1 Corinthians that I resolved to know nothing but Christ and him crucified? Do you see the importance of the death of Christ? It, it, as it does, it, it, it brings God to bring grace and peace to us. That our whole renewed relationship, our adoption, all rests on the Son who bore all of our sins. It's essential you understand this for salvation. It is absolutely essential. And yet this is one of the hardest things for me to communicate to you. That we are without hope except in the death of Christ. Most of us who are religious will admit that we're not perfect. We, we don't do everything right. But there's always that part of us that wants to have a hand in the salvation process. And, and I always find this out when I ask well, why would God want you with him in heaven? And they usually, and they, and many of you probably have heard similar things. I've been a pretty good person. We immediately go to our own bucket of accomplishments as somehow meriting this work that he's done. And you've got no bucket. There... This is the greatest, and this is what usually gets people. Everybody loves Carol. I don't have the same amount of friends that she does. And I'm convinced it's because 
a lot of times I'm trying to help people deconstruct their own confidence in what they've done as putting them in good stead before God. And people don't like that. I mean, I get it. I totally get it. Trying to tell people, you're really not that good. I, I mean, you, re you really do need more help than you think. I can't change the conditions and get you in a better spot to succeed. I mean, you really are without hope. I'm really sorry about that. And so people go talk to Carol more than they talk to me. And I get it. But, but, but this is the work that we all ought to be doing. Do we get this? I'm telling you, you can be religious as long as the, what is it, as the day is long. If you don't get this, you miss the center of the faith that he died for us. Do you get that? It is the foundation of our salvation. Charles Spurgeon, he says, Christ died for our sins, not for our virtues. It's not your efficiencies, but your deficiencies, which entitle you to the Lord Jesus. It's not your wealth, but your lack. It's not what you have, but it's what you have not. It's not what you can boast of, but what you mourn over, which qualifies you to receive the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? It's so inverted to what we think it ought to be. We, we want Jesus, and we want him to help us, but we often don't go that step to say, no, without him, I'm without hope. If you can say that, and you cling to him by faith, that means that you are at peace with God. If you have any weight at all on what you've done, you're falling into the false gospel that we'll be looking at through the book of Galatians. Because they would say, well, you do need faith in Jesus as the Messiah from God. But you need to be circumcised. It's not that big a deal. You need to do it, though. To be part of the covenant people, you need to be circumcised. You, do, you should eat according to these dietary laws. You should be doing these other things. Have we not heard that from preachers before? These things are important. They may not put it right up against the gospel, but boy, it's really dangerously close. And so what Paul's saying, it's Jesus Christ, he died for our sins. And really, it's the foundation of this church. If we're going to survive the times in which we live, our, our church cannot find its commonality on political views, racial views, economic views, educational views. It cannot be founded on those things. Uh, the church is founded on all of us humbling ourselves, saying, no, he alone saves. And that puts us all as brothers and sisters. We're a mishmash of people. We've got odds in here and we've got evens in here. We've got all kinds of different flavors and stripes. But at the end of the day, we all are humbled by this truth which unites us together in him. That's what the church has to be founded on. So you see here, the true gospel has come from above and the true gospel has changed actually reconciled us to God. But then third, and this is, this is really exciting, and I hope it, it may even be new to some of you, uh, but the true gospel inaugurates a new age of freedom. Look with me at four and five. He says this, he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Oh, this is really big. To deliver us from the present evil age. 
He's going to deliver. That word deliver can be rescue. You know, it was used for the Israelites being rescued from Egypt. It's used for Peter being rescued out of the prison. It's being used for Paul in Acts 23 when he was rescued from the mob that wanted to lynch him. John Stott calls Christianity a rescue religion because it's a religion that rescues people. It delivers them. It delivers them by his work of grace. One author made the analogy, he says, you know, if, if, uh, if you see a drowning man, it doesn't help him to give him a book on how to swim. You've got to rescue him. You've got to deliver him. And that's what Jesus has done. But what has he delivered us from? Well, this present evil age. Well, what is that? A present evil age. Well, you know, in the ancient mind, they looked at life in two ages, right? There's the present age in which we live. This is the present age right now. And there's an age to come. That's all. There's two ages in this world. So for all of us, our existence, there's a present age and there's an age to come. Now this present evil age, he says it's a present evil age. Uh, You know it is. We have plenty of empirical data out there. We live in an age marked by corruption, sin, brokenness. You know, it all came out of Genesis 3. A rebellion against God led to sin and corruption. It's an age marked by selfishness, inequality, injustice, anger, bitterness, rage. We live in an age of death. Everybody dies. Everybody in this room, unless Jesus Christ returns in glory, every one of us in here will die. It's an age of death. We live in this present evil age. It isn't just the tragedy in Afghanistan. It's profound profound. God, have mercy on us. Have mercy on them. But it's every age. It's every age. Go back to Stalin. Go back to Hitler. Go back along the way. It's in every age. You realize that as much as we're changing and and technology adjusting and medicine learning more about, we're all the same. It's this present evil age. Don't we long for the age to come? Well, when it says that he came to deliver us from this present evil age, Jesus came into this present evil age to bring about the new age. You know this because he began to preach that way. The first thing he preached was, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. When Jesus Christ came, he began to preach. A new age has dawned because God himself has taken in flesh and he now dwells in this age, bringing a new age. We see this promise in Matthew, and Matthew repeating the promise from Isaiah. He says, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and in the shadow of death, which we all live, on them a light has dawned. This is the beauty of Christ's ministry. You know, think about his ministry. He gave health to the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He gave hearing to the deaf. He gave speech to the mute. He cared for the widow. He cared for the children. He looked after the disenfranchised. He forgave sinners. He gave life to the dead. It's like new light coming in. When he taught, he said, we haven't heard this kind of teaching. It's a teaching with authority. He's teaching us God himself. Jesus coming brought a new age. 
It's a new age. And you see this new age accomplished by his death. And then he rises, putting death to death by his death. There is a new age. He's the first fruits of this new age. He has come to life in this present evil age. What does this mean for us? It means that right now, for the Christian, we live in the overlapping of these ages. Oh yeah, we still, we're not delivered from the material world. But there is a new age in which we live in our union with Christ. Through faith in the gospel, we are drawn to be one with Christ. That's the beauty of baptisms, that we go down into death with him. We come up to new life with him. We're now one in Christ. That's what the phrase means, being in Christ. We're now part of a new age. Well, what does life look like for us? What he delivered us from is that we're now free from being bound to the ways of the world, but that we can now live by the power of God's Spirit in a way like Christ. Paul sums it up this way in Romans. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Here's what he says. Do not be conformed to this world. He's saying literally, don't be conformed to the principles of this evil age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That for the Christian now, we have freedom to not constantly go left into the rut of the principles of the world, but now we can go right into the things of God. So in other words, for the believer, what does it mean to be delivered from this present evil age? It means that instead of me walking in falsehoods comfortably, I now want to speak truth. Instead of moving towards and finding some temporal pleasure and moving to lust, you can move towards purity. Instead of harboring bitterness and anger over the things that someone said to you, you can now move in forgiveness. Instead of always thinking about what I need and my selfishness, my needs getting met, I can sacrifice now for them. This is all because Christ has delivered us from this present evil age. We can now be different. So take a scenario out. Maybe two friends have, a, have an argument with one another. In the world, both are self-justified. Both try to explain themselves. Neither is looking to themselves as to what they did wrong, but they're pointing out the sins of the other. It leads to fracture in relationship, distance, distrust. Maybe they make some agree not to, uh, uh, we just got to agree to not agree you know, agreeing on disagreeing, uh, but, but that's the best that they can form. But, but two Christians have an argument. And by the power of God's Spirit, because Christ has died for our sins, we're able to start with our own souls and say, you know what, I did say this in a, in a harsh way to you, and I did it because I needed your respect, or I didn't think you respected me. You know? And we can be confessional. And we can keep our consciences clear and have relationships that are meaningful and trust can be regained. Think about this in marriages. This is what breaks my soul when marriages are not walking in the very power of the Spirit, looking to the cross of Christ to bring about healing and hope in the midst of troubles that maybe haven't been reconciled so well. This is the power of the gospel. Now, now the, the warning for us here is we have been trained that we look at this cross of Christ as just delivering us from the present evil age into the next age of glory. That's true, but don't wait it that way. There's benefit today that we're to be experiencing. There's joy today that we ought to be experiencing from this great gospel. 
that he's come to deliver us. Today we have eternal life. That's why theologians will often say, we're in eternal life now. For the Christian here, you are in eternal life. Why do they say that? Because we know we all have to die. They say it because Paul said it. He said that neither life nor death, nor angels nor demons, nor things present nor things to come, neither height nor depth, nor anything else will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. God is going to insulate you in his love from this day forward, even through death itself. And, and so this is how he's delivering us. He's delivering us now. We're in eternal life now. This is the beauty of the church. You know, as we practice these things, as we walk in truth and not in falsehood, as we sacrifice instead of self-serve, as we forgive instead of hold on to bitterness, as we walk in purity instead of lust, we are giving the world a picture of the foretaste of heaven. We're giving them a picture of the new age. This is the age that we're going to, and that's why we want to live in it right now. So you think just, we glanced over those three little words and you see all that's contained in them. This is what ignited the hearts of the reformers. We begin to look at these words a little closely, stop and pause. He came to deliver us from the present evil age. What I'm saying to you is your life should be different. Many people have got in their minds that accepting Christ and then it kind of just, that's, getting to the top of the hill, and now I'm just going to look around and enjoy the view. Well, praise God for those who receive Christ. But that's where it all begins. That's not where it ends. That's where the change begins, and we want to see this change. That's why I ask you every year, do you love him more at the end of this year than you did last year? Why? Because I'm expecting further deliverance from the present evil age in your marriages, in your work relationships, in your friendships. So you see, the true gospel has effect today on us, making us holy by the power of the Spirit. Wait till we get to chapter 5, liberating the power of the Spirit, helping us obey God with joy, not duty. Not like, yeah, I got to do this. I got to say no to that. No, 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 we're happy because of what we're getting in God. Okay, the fourth thing about this true gospel is that it results in the glory of God. It results in the glory of God. Look with me at the second half of four and five, he says, he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God and Father, to the will of our God. Don't you love that possessive? He's our God. He's not the God. He is our God. He's our Father. To whom be glory forever and ever. I think what Paul's trying to say is that this true gospel, if you get it, or if it gets you, that, that you can do nothing but thank God. And notice, it's according to the will of God. It was God's design, it was God's purpose that he saved us. Again, these false teachers are going to come in and say, you've got to participate with God. You have to help God along. Now, they wouldn't be saying that God's not sovereign or not all-powerful. They would just keep layering on the gospel the responsibilities of us. Now, we have responsibilities, there's no doubt, but they're not contributing to the gospel. It was the will of God. So in Isaiah 53, Isaiah says, it was the will of God to crush the son, to crush him. What does he mean by this? It was God's intent and purpose from, the foundation, from before the foundation of the world to bring forth a son that would bear our sins, 
that would lead us from this present evil age and lead us back to himself to be one with God. This is God's doing. He did it completely. You, I, we cannot make it better. You can't add to it. It's all of God. God started it. God sent the Son. He gave the Spirit to call us to himself. The gospel proper doesn't even involve our response to him. God did it. It's a triune work. They, the Father, Son, and Spirit, are the main players. God brought forth the plan. The Son executed it, and the Spirit applies it. We, by his grace, say thank you. To you be glory forever and ever. And that's why it ends. Paul ends in this doxology. Any good theology will always end in a doxology. Any good understanding of God is going to say, God, you ought to be praised. You ought to be honored. Is this what comes out of your mind when you think about the gospel? When you think about being saved, do you ever find yourself kind of erupting into some sort of spontaneous thankfulness? When you, when you hear this, has your mind been thinking about, why am I benefiting from this? Or have you been saying under your breath, thank you, God, for saving me? God, why would you do this for me? Are those thoughts ever coming to your mind? Because for Paul, he's going in this introduction of a letter, and it's as if he's hearing himself speak, and he moves right to worship. And Paul does this regularly. You see it in Romans 11. He busts into this doxology. You know, we're studying with the interns, First uh, Timothy. And in this letter, Paul writes to Timothy. He's telling Timothy, hey, you've got to guard the gospel. It's going to be attacked by false teachers. And you have to proclaim the gospel. You have to inform your people. He's the pastor of Ephesus here, a very cosmopolitan church. He's saying, you've got to proclaim the gospel to them. You've got to make sure they understand the beauty of the gospel. And, and he takes us through, really, verse 11. And then, and then 12, Paul moves into his testimony. He says, the gospel with which we've been entrusted it changed me. And then Paul goes into this personal testimony. It's really remarkable. He begins by saying, you know what? I was once a blasphemer. I was insolent. I was a persecutor of the church. But God, showing his great mercy, had patience with me. And he saved me. And, and, and then Paul tells his testimony. And then at the end of the testimony, the very last line in verse 17, he says, he says, now to God of all the ages the present evil age, and the age to come. Now to the God of all ages, immortal, invisible, be glory forever and ever. He goes right into this worship again. Do you find that to be your experience? When you read the scriptures, when you consider what he's done, do you ever just mumble, God, thank you. God, I can't believe it. Let that be the language that you walk with. I mean, the gospel ought to cause us. That's why when we speak about affections here, I don't want you just to be happy to be happy. I want your happiness to have an object, and that object is God, who has done all these things for us in Christ through the Spirit. So it's a, it's a good calibrator, really, for you. If you find yourself really never exercising gratitude for the gospel, then I would want to ask, do you understand the gospel first? I might want to say, have you given thought to the gospel? Maybe you've been so busy and so distracted and so consumed, maybe even with good things, that we've lost track of the most important thing. If you do find yourself giving praise to God, then, 
then rejoice over his mercy in your life. But this is part of what the gospel should do. So as we go through this book of Galatians, we're going to see the true gospel has come from above. This true gospel has actually reconciled us and even made way for our own adoption. And, And this gospel has given us freedom now to say no to sin and to rejoice in righteousness. Not a duty-bound righteousness, but a joy-filled righteousness. And then it leads us to be a people that, you know what? We love to worship God. We love to give thanks to Him. We are grateful. We're humble, humble, but we are grateful. This is the book that we're about to embark on. It's going to take us a few months to get through it. I would encourage you to start reading it now. It'll probably take you half an hour to read the whole thing through. And, you know, you will find incredible blessing if you were to try to even set for yourself the task. Read the book every day. If you can, every day. If you can't, read it two to three times a week just to get it in your blood. And you'll see where we're going. You'll see the peaks. You'll see the valleys. You'll see it all. And you'll be coming in a way that will be, like, super prepared for what then you hear from here. But this is the nature of the gospel. We want to get this message straight. If we don't get this message straight, we're in deep trouble. But if we do get it straight, we're really in great shape. Let's just take a moment now and thank God for his word and ask him uh, to make it true, clear, and alive for you.